Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. Good morning, everybody. Everybody good? My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. I'm delighted to welcome you to worship today. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. And can we just take a moment and talk about everybody's new favorite choir member? Did y'all see little Theo in his mama's arms? He the coolest thing ever, man. He was so chill. I think we're dedicating him next Sunday. So he gets to be the star of the show next week. Uh, what a great kid. Uh, what a great mama. That's just cool. Great way to grow up. Joshua chapter 6, speaking of growing up, uh, today one of the most popular children's stories in all the Bible. This is probably a story you remember if you grew up in church from kindergarten, Sunday school class. My wife's a kindergarten, Sunday school teacher here at Woodburn, and uh, on the day they do the Joshua at Jericho story, it's pretty exciting. They have cardboard bricks back there, cardboard blocks. They build up a wall. They get toilet paper rolls to, you know, like blow like little horns. You, you have to understand how important toilet paper rolls are in Christian education. We couldn't do much of anything without toilet paper rolls. They walk around the wall. They blow their little toilet paper horns. And then after they get around the seventh time, they kick the walls down. It's so exciting. It's a great story, right? Joshua fought the battle. There's a song that we sing. Joshua fought the battle at Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Yeah. You got to love this story. You got to love this story, but you also have to pay attention because sometimes I almost feel like we take some of the biggest, deepest, most important stories and turn them into a coloring page for the kids. And then we don't think about them again. I want you to read this story today with me, not as a kid's story, but as a story for your life. All right. Joshua chapter six, starting verse one, Joshua at Jericho. This is good stuff. Uh, read with me. Joshua chapter six, verse one. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in, but the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can, then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight right into the town. So Joshua called together the priests and said, take up the ark of the Lord's covenant and assign seven priests to walk in front of it, each carrying a ram's horn. Then he gave orders to the people, march around the town and the armed men will lead the way in front of the ark of the Lord. After Joshua spoke to the people, the seven priests with the ram's horn started marching in the presence of the Lord, blowing the horns as they marched. And the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed behind them. Some of the armed men marched in front of the priests with the horns, and some behind the Ark, with the priests continually blowing the horns. 
Do not shout. Do not even talk, Joshua commanded. Not a single word from any of you until I tell you to shout, then shout. So the ark of the Lord was carried around the town once that day, and then everyone returned to spend the night in the camp. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests again carried the ark of the Lord. The seven priests with the ram's horns marched in front of the ark of the Lord, blowing their horns again. The armed men marched both in front of the priests with the horns and behind the ark of the Lord. All this time, the priests were blowing their horns. And on the second day, again, they marched around the town once and returned to the camp. They followed this pattern for six days. On the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. But this time, they went around the town seven times. The seventh time around, as the priests sounded the long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. Verse 20. When the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly, the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. Is that pretty much the way you remember that story from Sunday school? That's pretty much the way I remember the story, too. It's pretty much the way I've preached it for 26 years right there. Uh, I read the scripture just like that. But I, I, I skip verses. I stopped at verse 20 on purpose. I didn't really want to deal with verse 21, and I skipped a whole section there in the middle. Um, I did that for you. I, I feel like your dear hearts probably just don't need the uh, questions that will be raised if I read all of it. Honestly, uh, we have to cut certain things out of the story to make it a good children's story. It's actually not a very good children's story if you lead all the other stuff in. Uh, there's a really good sermon I could preach with all that stuff left out, and I've preached it a million times. I leave out verse 21. I leave out the other ugly parts, and I can preach a sermon you will love. I mean, I could have you on your feet. I could have you ready to march into battle. I could have you so excited about this story, and I've done that, and I could do it now. I could preach a sermon without those verses, and you would like it, but not today. Because that's not the way the Bible works. We don't really get to edit out the verses that make us uncomfortable or the verses that raise questions. We don't get to do that. Understand how the word of God works. It comes to us from above. It is above us. We are beneath it, which means we don't ever get to stand above the Bible and then pass judgment. We don't get to stand back and say that something in the Bible is no longer you know, relevant to our lives. We can't say that it's outdated. We, we, we don't get to stand back and pretend that we know more than the Bible knows. We don't get to read the Bible and then, you know, sort of change the Bible to align with our preferences, our, you know, predetermined opinions. We don't get to do any of that. That's not how the Bible works. The Bible comes from above us and it remains above us. We are beneath it. And that means the Bible always, always retains the authority to command us. We don't get to command it. And whether you like it or not, when you read the Bible, if you read it with any kind of seriousness, you will have to interpret it. But more importantly, the Bible will interpret you. For the longest time in my life, I thought I was reading the Bible. And then suddenly I reached a point where I realized this whole time, no, the Bible's been reading me. 
So the Bible is God's word. The Bible is inspired. Every verse, understand, every chapter, including Joshua chapter 6. So today, let me just go back and put in the verse that I left out, and then we'll just deal with the truth of that, all right? Start back with me in verse 20. When the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly, the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. Verse 21. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords. Men, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, goats, donkeys. Everything in Jericho was completely destroyed. Now you know why, you know, stopped at verse 20. Um, Verse 21 raises questions for us. I don't know if it always has. I don't know if our parents, our grandparents would have read it this way, but man, we read it this way now. And it, uh, I don't think I have to do any convincing to tell you that you know, there's a reason why we don't have a coloring page of Joshua killing the children of Jericho. That's not a very good coloring page. But it's a pretty good question. Why? These conquest passages in Scripture give a lot of people a lot of problems, and I understand that. I mean, let's just be real. If any commanding officer in our day did in another city what Joshua did to Jericho, he would be tried for war crimes. Not just kill people. And this is the Bible. I mean, how do you begin to hold together the the God, the the Father of Jesus, who loved the world so much that he sent his only son, and then say it's the same God who sent Joshua into Jericho to kill all the men, women, boys, and girls? I mean, how how do you begin to hold that together? There are people who have lost their faith. There are people who've walked away from the Bible just because of that question. They can't make sense of this you know, bloodthirsty God that you find in chapters like Joshua chapter 6. So can we talk about that? Understand, again, something about the Word of God. Realize that it is God's Word all the way through. You don't get to pick out points or, or you don't get to take one part and, and make other parts disappear. Psalm 145, verses 8 through 9, give us a really good picture of what God is like, who God is. And understand the biggest part of what Scripture's doing for us is revealing to us who God is and the nature of God. So Psalm 145 and verses like it are very important. This tells us what God is like, and this is what it says. The Lord is merciful and, say the word, compassionate. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to, say the word, everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. Now this is the word of God, and this is what God is like. And most of you are very, very comfortable with with, with this kind of verse, this kind of truth. You like thinking of the God who is merciful and compassionate, and he is. He, He is. Understand, if you really want to know who God is, then you have to know who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh, and Jesus is the one who reveals God to us, and Jesus shows us the way that God so loved the world. You understand? Love the world enough to die for the world. So the Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone, everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. 
I know all of this is true. I know this is true. I just would have a more difficult time explaining to you how this is true for the people of Jericho. You know what I'm saying? The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. Did the Lord love the people of Jericho? The Lord loved the children of Jericho. The Lord is good to everyone, everyone. Was the Lord good to the people of Jericho? He showers compassion on all his creation. Would you say that he showered compassion upon the people of Jericho on the day that Joshua fought that battle? See, these are hard questions. Really, really hard questions. And those of you who've asked this very question with any level of seriousness, I understand where that comes from. I really, really do. I have the same struggle with this passage. Now, to say that I struggle with the passage doesn't mean that I don't find a way through this. I, I, I want to help you find a way through this because I don't think that you are really uh, doing anything wise when you take one verse of Scripture and make it argue against another verse of Scripture. It's all God's Word. It's all God-breathed, and all of it reveals truth to us. We just have to interpret and figure out how these things are all true at the same time. So let's do a couple of things together. First off, basic spiritual principle. God's patience with sinners lasts a long time. How many of you in your life know that to be true? Okay, every one of you need to get your hand up because you're all sinners, just like me. I'm a sinner, which means most of what I know from God, I, I know because God has given me multiple chances. Not just one more chance, not just a second chance, Probably about today, I'm on my, you know, 30,000th chance. God just continues to give me another chance. I continue to fail. I continue to sin. And God just continues to show patience with me. God's patience with sinners is long. And we all appreciate that and we benefit from that. God gives us a long, long time to repent, a long time to follow him. God's Patience with us is long. Understand, it lasts a long time, but it doesn't last forever. You need to understand this. God is patient with sinners, but you must not misunderstand that patience as weakness or a lack of justice. God is a God of perfect love. God is also the God of perfect justice. And justice means God is a God who rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Make no mistake. You say, well, Pastor Tim, I don't know about that. There's a whole lot of wicked people in the world, and they just running around doing everything they want to do, and nothing bad ever seems to happen to them. That's what I'm saying. God's patience with sinners lasts a long time. He gives people a long time. In the book of 2 Peter, when Peter's trying to answer this question of why is it taking Jesus so long to come back? You know, Jesus is going to come back and, and, and say over and, and create a new world out of this old world. We know that he's coming back to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. But, you know, when and how long? People have been saying that my whole life. And so Peter says, don't you understand that God's patience is not really slowness in the way that you understand slowness. It's not that God is taking a long time or not that God is not going to come back. It's just that God is giving people time to repent. God doesn't want anybody to perish. That's what Peter says. God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. So God has a long, long patience with people, but it doesn't last forever. 
There is such a time as too late. And one of these days, you're gonna burn through your last chance. You don't necessarily know that you get another chance. You don't deserve another chance, neither do I. It's all because God is such a patient, long-suffering, compassionate, slow-to-get-angry God. You understand? But his patience doesn't last forever. There does come a time when God punishes the wicked because, because he needs to. And deep down inside, don't you want him to? I mean, all the same people who say, I don't know about this bloodthirsty God in Joshua chapter six. They're the same people that would say, where was God? You know, when Adolf Hitler was, you know, just putting Jews in the ovens and where was God on 9-11 when the terrorists were flying planes? Where was God? You know, you can't do both of those things at once. You can't be upset when God punishes the wicked and then get mad at him when he doesn't. You, you can't have it both ways. God is a God who punishes the wicked. God is a God of justice and you want him to be. You don't want to live in a world where there are no rules, where there's no score being kept. You don't want to live in a world where in the end it's random and chaotic and no justice. Don't you want to be in a world where one day there is a God on the throne who is going to set everything right? God's patience with sinners lasts a long time, but it doesn't last forever. Now, now with that, stay with me. We don't know the whole story of God's involvement with the nations through history, including Jericho. Just, I should, I'm stating the obvious. We don't know the whole story, y'all. Joshua was an ancient, um, Jericho was an ancient, ancient city. Jericho. The people have been there for, for eons, and it's one of the oldest cities you know, known you know, in, in human history, Jericho. It's an ancient city, and we don't know the whole story, but I promise you there's a whole story there. It's not just this story. God just didn't wake up one day in a bad mood and want to wipe out Jericho. I'm telling you, there's a whole story here. I can say that because in the Bible, there's this little book called Jonah, another kid's story, Jonah and the Whale. Jonah is the worst missionary ever that God calls to go to a place called Nineveh, which happens to be the capital city of a very wicked, evil empire called the Assyrians. All through scripture, the Assyrians are named as an ancient, wicked, evil empire. They were an evil empire. And God sends Jonah to preach to them. God wanted the people of Nineveh to repent and, and, and come back to him. Do you understand that? Do you understand the amazing nature of that? The Syrians were enemies of Israel. The Syrians were not Israel. And yet God loved them. God sent a mystery. God wanted them to repent. And then do you understand, after Jonah preached at Nineveh, it's, it's, it's generations before Assyria is destroyed. God is patient with sinners. And I'm telling you, there's a story with Assyria that you don't even know. And you do not know the story about God's dealings with Jericho. You don't know. I promise you they had received enough light not to choose darkness. I promise you that. But we also know that the citizens of Jericho and the, the, all of the inhabitants of, of, of Canaan, they were wicked people. They sacrificed their children in idol worship. They sacrificed their own children. They chose that. And God's patience with them was long, but there did come a time when God brings justice. God brings his judgment upon the uh, town of Jericho. You don't know the whole story, but I'm telling you, there is a story there. I'm gonna keep going. God uses his power to accomplish his purpose to bless and redeem the whole world. 
the whole world. I'm telling you, God has a gigantic plan, a gigantic plan to bless every nation in all history and all the world. Remember when God chooses Abraham and calls him out, he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and then through you, I'm going to bless the nations. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations. God's power, God's love, God's compassion has always gone out for all of the nations, and God's great purpose is to bless and redeem every nation of the world. Now, with that, when God's power is displayed for or against you, I I know, You don't like to think about it that way, but I'm telling you, God's power will be displayed, and sometimes that's going to cut for you, and sometimes that's going to cut against you, and you're not going to like it when it cuts against you, but I'm telling you, sometimes it will. God's power is on display, sometimes for you, sometimes against you, and no matter what, you still have the same job. You have one job to do in that. So, Pastor, what are you talking about? God's power displayed for or against me. Well, um... I guess the best illustration I could give would be to ask you to think back to the tornado that came through Bowling Green last December. It was terrible. I know some of you, you suffered terribly. You lost, and people lost homes. Hundreds of people in Bowling Green lost their homes. They lost everything. They lost lives. I mean, it was terrible, terrible, terrible. Interesting thing, though, is in, in talking to people in Bowling Green, and I've heard multiple stories like this. Somebody will say, oh, Pastor Tim, I just need to give God the glory. I need to tell you what God did for me. My house is right there, right there where the tornado came through. And the tornado took my neighbor's house on one side and took my neighbor's house on the other side, but then my house was spared. It's a God thing. Praise the Lord. Well, yeah. I I agree, you you probably feel really thankful that God spared your house, but I wouldn't be praising the Lord in front of my neighbors if I were you. Uh, You know what I mean? Like, like how do you go, well, it's a God thing, he saved my house, but everybody around you lost their house. I mean, what do you do with that? And what do you do if you're the neighbor who loves the Lord just as much as the next neighbor, but then you lose everything? How do you make sense of that? This is what I'm telling you. When God's power is displayed for or against you, it doesn't matter if it's for or against you because you're not the center of it. It's not about you. God is always working a bigger purpose out. So understand, whether God's power is displayed for you or against you, you must always seek to understand the greater redemptive work he's doing and become a part of it. It's a greater work. It's a greater purpose. It's not about you. But you are invited to be a part of it. So whether God's power uh, in, in this instance helps you or hurts you, you still have one option, and that is to get behind whatever God is doing and be a part of it. Through this and everything else, God is working out his purpose and his plan to bless the entire world. God wants to save the world. God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. Everyone. You see that? So about this battle at at Jericho, um, I know we got some military guys in the room. Would y'all just all, I don't know a lot about the military, but this just really seems like not a good plan. Like this is not how you take a city, is it? Like I promise you they're not using this at West Point, you know, to train future commanders. They're not saying do it Joshua's way because Joshua's way, I don't know. How is this even a good idea? This, Joshua fought the battle, we say, but there is no battle. There's no fight. Notice, first off, in this story, the most prominent thing of all is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what is that? 
like, don't get confused. There's like Noah's Ark and the Ark of the Covenant, and they are not the same thing at all. Noah's Ark is a boat. Yeah, good. Y'all were there in Sunday school that day too. Um, Noah's Ark is a boat. The Ark of the Covenant is what? It's a, it's a chest. It's, it's a container, and it really wasn't very big. It was actually quite small. It was amazing. It was ornate. It was golden. It was valuable. But the most important thing is not what it was in itself, but what it contained. It was a container. What was in it? Yeah, a number of things were, were inside. All the artifacts from the Exodus. So, for example, the, the tablets of the law that Moses got from Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, you know, those tablets went into the Ark. I mean, you had to, they had to do something with those, right? So, they're inside the Ark of the Covenant. What else? Manna. Yeah, manna. That amazing bread from heaven that the children of Israel ate. It's all they had for food for 40 years in the desert. God just fed them bread that rained down from heaven once a day. If you don't believe it, they, they, they took a little Ziploc sandwich baggie of manna and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Ordinarily, you can't keep it. It would spoil. You had to go back every day and get fresh because you couldn't keep it overnight. But the manna in the Ark of the Covenant was going to last forever. So people could see it, so people could know, so they could tell the story, right? So that the children and the children's children one day could look inside, see all of those artifacts and know that this story didn't just happen to our parents, it's still happening now. This God who did these amazing things, he's still with us, he's still doing amazing things for us. So the Ark of the Covenant is featured prominently in this whole strategy, it's out front. Now again, these are desert people. They don't have a nation. They don't have a town. They don't have anything. I would say the Ark of the Covenant is the most valuable thing that the people of Israel have. If I were launching a battle, I'd be hiding that thing. I would be leaving it somewhere safe, you know, buried behind. I would not put it out front where it's the most vulnerable thing in the world. But that's the point. It's not the most vulnerable thing in the world. For the people of Israel, that Ark of the Covenant represents what? presence of God. It's the presence of God. And so for them, the Ark of the Covenant goes out front because God's going to lead this. God promised he would fight for them. God promised to give them the city. So they put the Ark of the Covenant out front. God leads us. All right. I don't know how as a military strategy goes, that makes good sense, but that is the strategy. God leads us. Second, it's the timing of it. The timing. Timing is everything in a battle. Now, I would think if you're planning you know, an attack against an enemy nation, or even if you're just trying to attack your sister in the other room, I think that your most important you know, weapon there is surprise. Like timing is everything, and you only get one chance you know, to just like, but, you know, and so you don't spoil that, you know? You don't make an appointment. Listen, I, I like to work out an attack. I like to come in and probably kill you. Uh, but tomorrow about 1-ish, 1 1.15, that's, uh, that's not good for me. I have an appointment. I, I'm, I'm, about 3.30, you know, I could come by then maybe, you know, with my sword and, you know, take off your head. That's not how battle works. It's the surprise. But yet, in the timing of this battle, notice that, that they put the ark out front. They all get in the line. And, and, and without saying a word, they just march around. I mean, that's the whole plan. Honestly, that's it. That's the plan. They're going to walk around the city. And they do that one time the first day. Then they go home. 
And then the next day they come back, first thing in the morning, they walk around the city, they don't say a word, and then they go home. I think by now, the people of Jericho can figure out the pattern. They're coming back every day, first thing to walk around the city. I mean, you know, this is, if you were thinking that surprise was important, there's no surprise. They, they practice run six times. So, I mean, the people of Jericho know exactly, exactly when to expect them tomorrow. So I don't know what kind of strategy this is. On top of that, it's these six days of walking around the walls and nothing happens. Absolutely nothing happens. Six days. I mean, what is the point of that? Uh, all right, let me just give you this one. God is free. Uh, we forget this. We like to think of God as powerful and God is strong and God is all-knowing, but we just forget God is free, which means what? He can do anything he wants to do, and he can do it any way he wants to do it. He can do it when he wants to do it. God is absolutely free, absolutely free. So God is free to work in his own time, any way he chooses, and he's totally without obligation to reveal the plan to you. I know this is an insult to your sense of importance, but God is under no obligation to explain the plan to you. He just tells you what to do and you obey him. That's the plan. He commands, you obey and you're never really going to understand any of it. I, I just know that. So the people of Israel are walking around this city one time, go home, come back the next day. They do this six days in a row. And I need to remind you, nothing happens. The walls don't even shake a little bit. Nobody even opens the door. Not a pebble falls off the wall. I mean, nothing happens six days. What kind of a plan is this? All right, now, I would say that is connected to that little detail where it says, y'all gonna walk around for six days and nobody's gonna say a single word, not a single word. Now, why can't they talk? I mean, I would think they could talk to pass the time. They could sing some worship choruses, you know? They could encourage each other. It seems like talking would be, you know, just a way to build morale among the troops, right? But no, no, you're going to walk around in complete silence and you're not going to say a single word. Why is that? I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly, but I think I know because I know y'all. Like, like just us in this room right here. I know y'all pretty well, you know. And I know that if this was our plan and I let y'all talk, like, if I let y'all talk, like, within the first 20 minutes, like, like Avery is going to say, why are we doing this? Right? I mean, probably not you, Avery, but, you know, other people. Esther, yeah, <laughs> Maria. Uh, somebody's going to say, why, why are we doing this? You know, is this your, Joshua, is it, you call this a plan? And if you let people talk, I mean, you let your teenager talk, what's your teenager going to say? This is so dumb. This is so dumb. Why are we doing this? They're going to be rolling their eyes and saying, this is so dumb. Is this your plan? Is this your whole plan? This is the dumbest thing. I mean, you know, if you let people talk, they're just, that's what they're going to say. So understand, if you're not careful, you'll talk yourself right out of everything God is trying to do in your life. I'm talking about right now. If you're not careful, you'll talk yourself right out of it. Listen to how you talk. Listen to your vocabulary of faith. How many times in your own life when you've known exactly what God wanted you to do and you did it for a while and then you said, why am I still doing this? 
Man, nothing happens. Nothing, I, I go to church, I don't go to church. Nothing happens. Why do I bother? I pray and I pray and I pray and I've been praying for the same thing. And I pray for God to watch over my children. And I pray to get a job and I still don't have a job. Why am I even bothering? This is dumb. I mean, you know, you can talk yourself right out of everything God's doing in your life because I'm telling you, you don't understand his timing. You don't know his timing. And there may be long stretches when it seems like nothing's happening. You just got to continue in silent, persistent obedience. I don't know how well y'all know me, but let me tell you how I am. I probably would have, I'd have done it, the, I'd have walked around the first day, probably the second day. I, I, I'm, I'm a rule follower and I'm a go-getter. I probably would have, I'd have probably done it five or six days. But, but seven days, you know, and I would be the idiot who would quit on day six. Because understand, day seven is the day it's all about to happen. Like, that's the day. Like, I know six days, nothing happens, but day seven, the walls are going to crash, and I would be the dummy who would have quit on day six, or, or even better, I'd be the dummy who would quit on day seven, lap five, or lap six, you know? It's like the day we all ran the, the, the Wendy's 10K or the old Bowling Green 10K, you know, back in the day. Remember they just give out those big cash prizes? And my daddy went that day, he walked, you know, he walked like the, the 5K, which was kind of amazing. And, uh, and we said, dad, you got to stick around because I have a drawing for, you know, big cash prize. And, and my dad said, I ain't never won anything. My dad's an old farmer. I ain't never won anything in my whole life. I'm going home, going home. I said, dad, you don't know, you know, stick around. He said, no, I'm going home. I never, I ain't never won anything a day in my life. So get out of the big moment, drummer, like $10,000, about to be given it right, $10,000. Don Harris. Yeah, you have to be present to win. You have to come down, you know. Yeah, Don Harris. Yeah, I tried to make him tithe it anyway. I think he should have had to tithe, you know, on that money. No, you understand how often you leave, you quit, you give up right before God brings the very thing you've been asking for, the thing you've been waiting for. Man, if you're not careful, you will talk yourself right out of everything he's trying to do in your life. So they walk six days in silence. Nobody says a word. That's smart. Nobody can talk. And then they can't say a word until day seven. They walk around seven times, seven times. And understand, every time's the same. Nothing happens. There's no sense of building drama. It's just more and more the same until that seventh time they finish the lap. Joshua says shout. They shout. And then what? They just fall. The walls just fall. All right, I'll be done, but let me just give you a couple of things. As I say, God's word, it's not just a story for kids. It's always, you know, God's word for you, for all of us. So this isn't really just about Joshua at Jericho, although it is all about Joshua at Jericho. It's also about you and your life of faith and walking with the Lord. So can I just take this lesson and give you four lessons, four things you just need to expect? Um, first, expect there to be walls along the way. I know that sometimes it's counterintuitive. You think if I'm, if I'm doing what God wants me to do, if God's walking with me, that he's going to protect me and nothing bad should happen. It, you know, it should be smooth sailing. And that's not how it works. 
You need to understand that you have an enemy. His name is the devil, and, and he despite, he'd kill you if he could, but he can't. So therefore, he just tries to oppose you in every way. But for the most part, if you're not serving the Lord, if you're not seeking the Lord, then the devil doesn't really have to bother you because he's got you where he wants you. But the moment you begin to seek the Lord, the moment you begin to try to get in the word or the moment you begin to pray, the moment you begin to try to live right, I'm telling you at that point, there's a target on your back and you will be opposed every step of the way. So you must not think that the Christian life, that the life of faith is going to be just like ice skating, you know, right into the beauty of the promised land. No, there will be walls, there will be obstacles, there will be battles you will have to fight. Victory is promised, but don't make the mistake of thinking that doesn't mean you won't have to fight and sometimes fight hard. Jesus said, if anybody wants to be my disciple, they must take up their cross and follow me. I mean, the cross was Jesus' self-sacrifice for the world. I mean, it cost him his life. You're thinking you're going to follow him and it won't cost you anything? Expect there to be walls along the way. Number two. Expect to follow a plan that's nothing like the plan you would have devised yourself. How many of you know that this is true? Like, you know this, you've lived long enough to know that the beautiful plan of God in your life was nothing like what you could have possibly planned on your own. Yeah, it's just amazing. It's amazing. And yet, we still think that we know like stuff. We still think that like we should plan and God should just, you know, give us what we want, follow our plan. And God's not going to be following your plan because your plan is dumb. Totally dumb. Do you remember, like, like, you're a high school girl, and you're in 10th grade, and you're in algebra class, and you got an empty notebook, and you take out your pen, and you start to write. What do you write? Well, you only write one thing. You write your first name, and then you write it like you're married to this guy you're crushing on, like in ele- this 11th grade football player, and you're so in love with him. So, you, like, in your notebook, you pretend like you're married. Y'all remember this? And so you would write your name and his name like, 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 like you're married. And then you might even, if the class went long, you start writing like names of the, the children y'all were going to have together. Like you'd name all your kids and all your kids would have names. And probably it's like, I don't know when you were born, like probably you named your kids like after all the band members of One Direction. So you like had a kid named Zane and, and a kid named Harry and you're just dreaming of your life. And you're thinking, this is the plan. You know, I'm going to marry football dude, a handsome guy that doesn't know my name. And then we're going to have these wonderful kids and they'll all be named like One Direction. And, and like, that's your whole plan when you're 16. But I assume you lived long enough now to know, aren't you glad that didn't happen? Have you not seen that guy now since high school? Is he not fat? <laughs> like, in high school, he looked awesome. You just thought, my goodness, that's the most beautiful man ever. But I'm telling you, most guys who are beautiful in high school, they peak early. He peaked early. Now he's just, you know, just, you know, this old guy, you know. And you see him and think, Lord, thank you. Thank you I'm not having his babies. Thank you, Lord, that I didn't marry. I mean, you don't know what I'm talking about? Like in our minds, we think we know what we want. We think we know what a good life would be. And I'm telling you, you can't do that. You can't trust your plan because you don't know enough to plan. You don't know anything. You don't know what you're gonna, you know what your life will be like in five years. You don't know who you'll be in five years. You don't know what kind of husband you would want. Just trust God with all of that. God knows you. God knows all about you. God knows your future. God knows everything that's gonna happen. God knows every choice you're gonna make. 
God knows everything he put inside of you. Trust him. Trust him. Now, the plan he comes up with is going to take you in some crazy places. You're going to think, oh my goodness, there can't be a plan. This plan doesn't make any sense, but I'm telling you, it doesn't make sense to you. But if you knew everything that God knows, you'd know this plan is best. Everything you dream of, everything your heart craves, everything good in life, God has for you along that path. Follow his path. You're not going to improve on any of it by stepping off in a direction of your own choosing. Expect to follow a plan that's nothing like the plan you would have devised yourself. Next, expect to continue in obedience during long periods when nothing seems to happen. This is hard. This is hard. The children of Israel had to walk around that wall. They walked, I mean, somebody do the math, like what, 13 times or something before it actually falls. I mean, my goodness, how many times you keep doing something and nothing happens before you finally get the idea that, man, nothing's going to happen except that if you're doing what God has told you to do and God has given you a promise, then you, you just continue. You don't stop. God said, walk around these walls. I'm going to give this city to you. You're going to walk until the walls come down. I mean, but that's hard. That's hard. We don't like long periods when nothing seems to happen. We like things to happen instantaneously, like now. If you order anything, like like the other day I was looking for something on Amazon, and I saw this one item that looked terrible, but it said it could be delivered tomorrow. Like, like today and like tomorrow, like I could have it in 24 hours. I'm thinking, well, I'm getting that one. Now, in the back of my mind, I knew this one's junk. Like I could tell it was junk. It was $9.99. It was junk. But the one I really wanted that was probably good would be here like in March. I ain't waiting around till March. You know what I mean? Like if I could have, you know, this other one tomorrow, is that not just automatically better? Like I could get it tomorrow, y'all. Tomorrow. Do you know what it's like to wait for something till March? Even if it's great, I got to wait till March. But do you understand how many times in your life you have settled for junk because you could have it now? You know, how many times in your life you have settled for something that was not in any way even your idea of what's best, but you did it because it was now. You had it now. You didn't have to wait. And I'm telling you, in the life of faith, there's almost always waiting involved. Sometimes long periods of silent obedience in which it seems like nothing happens, but do not believe for a moment that nothing's going to happen. You've got a promise from God. He's given you commands. You just continue to obey even if it seems like nothing is happening. One last thing, expect victory victory, and then expect to move on. Expect victory. See, again, if it was me and you walking into Jericho, the walls come down, we'd be like, man, it can't get any better than this. Man, I have seen it all now. Man, those walls came down. I tell you, this, this is the high point of my life. I'll be taking selfies, putting on my Instagram, best day of my life, you know? Best day ever. And then I'll just be thinking, man, I tell you, whoo, it's been a good life. You know, I'll just retire here because Jericho is awesome. But do you understand that Jericho is like the very first, very first place they step foot when they get in the promised land. On the other side of Jericho is the promised land. Like everything God had promised is on the other side of this. I know you think, man, this is great. This is everything. It can't get better. But I'm telling you, 
Everything got better past Jericho. The land that flows with milk and honey, the mountains, everything that they'd always dreamed of, it's on the other side of these walls. So you claim the victory and then you just keep on moving on. As long as God has breath in your lungs and strength in your bones, he's got something more for you. Just keep following him. It gets better and better and better. I'm not saying there aren't battles to fight, walls that you'll have to come up against, but I'm telling you, God's intention is to bless you and to bless the whole world and nothing will thwart his purpose. So I could have given you this whole thing as a coloring sheet. Makes a really, really good kid's story. How Joshua fought the battle and the walls came tumbling down, but this is more than a kid's story. To understand it's more than just the story of Joshua fighting a battle at Jericho. This is your story. How you fight the battles of your life, what you do when you're up against a wall, what it means when you pray and you pray and you follow and you follow and nothing seems to happen, what it means when you need victory and victory doesn't seem to be close. Joshua's story is good for reminding you what it is to be under command of the one who can tell you what to do and where to find good things. It's a reminder of the importance of obedience. Telling you, some of you right now are this close to everything God has promised you, but you're also this close to giving up and quitting. Don't quit. Keep marching, keep walking, keep trusting, keep obeying. God will keep all his promises. Pray with me.